Can everybody see that okay? Okay. How's everybody doing tonight? Things go well this morning? Good, 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 good. But uh, we're going to continue talking tonight about the church. And uh, what I want you to do is find uh, Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles this evening. Uh, But also find Romans 12, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these in detail tonight, so I want to concentrate this evening on Ephesians 4. And as I mentioned to you last week, what we wanted to concentrate on tonight is in talking about the church... Uh, how how does the Lord design ministry to be done? And what we're going to talk about tonight is, and probably some next week, is spiritual gifts. So what I want you to do is find Romans 12, verses 3 and following, and then also... uh, Let's see, there's 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, there's Ephesians 4, 8 and following, and then 1 Peter Four ten, and uh, let's get started with prayer. Who would lead us tonight in prayer? Volunteer, Dave. Amen. Thank you. Ephesians 4, pick up reading with me uh, in verse 8, Ephesians 4 verse 8 says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might feel all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want you to listen to this illustration. At 3.09 p.m. on Friday, February the 17th, 2006, a group of eight workers at the Conagra Foods, a ham and corn beef plant in Lincoln, Nebraska, bought a lottery ticket at the local U-Stop convenience store. They won a record 365 million jackpot from the February the 18th Powerball drawing. The group elected to take the cash option on the jackpot valued at $177.3 million. Their respective shares will be $22,162,500 after withholding 25% federal and 5% state tax. They will share $124,000. Point one one million dollars, uh, or fifteen point five million, respectively, and the winners range in age from twenty six years of age all the way up to fifty six years of age. Again, that was back in '06. Now, while none of the group has formulated, or at the time of the report, had formulated specific plans for their prize uh, potential. Actions mentioned to officials included wash my truck. He do a lot of auto bail with $15.5 million. Wash my truck, pay bills, get some sleep, and continue working temporarily until my spot is filled. This was some of the actions given. Now, folks... I don't in any way want to promote the lottery, which is gambling, okay? That's not the point. The point of the illustration is simply to say that these eight people became insanely rich overnight, right? Very wealthy overnight. But I want you to understand something. You're even richer those of you who are in Christ. Do you believe that? I hope you do. You're even richer. Because at the moment of your salvation, what did you receive? Name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Union. Union with the Son of God. Forgiveness, 
eternal life, the Holy Spirit, a mansion in heaven, join heirs with Christ. What else? You're not done yet. Okay, Christ, closer than a brother. You what? Join heirs with Christ and uh, uh, ruling with Christ over the angels. Yes. The Holy Spirit's dwelling. Forgiveness of sins. We become a holy temple. All of these, every answer you get an A plus for. But you've still not got the answer I was looking for. Okay, you're you're getting real close. You're on the you're on going down the avenue I'm looking at. You get to serve the Lord. You're, you're going down the right avenue. We have gifts. Thank you. You get a spiritual gift. At the moment of your salvation, you get all everything that everybody just mentioned. But you also receive a gift. A spiritual gift. You don't believe that. Do you believe that? You're wondering what yours is, okay. <laughs> now, now, folks, Paul has been talking, if we could go back and study all of the book of Ephesians so far, we would see that, that Paul has been talking about the unity of the church. Uh, earlier on, he said that we're, there, we're one, one body, and in that one body, there's... One faith. What's some of the ones that he mentions? Does he? One Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Yes. And so that is a blessed unity in the church that he talks about, right? One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. A blessed unity in the church, right? But folks, it, it would be completely wrong to suggest that unity means sameness. He's not talking about a unity that is expressed through conformity, but actually a unity with diversity. You say, Scott, that doesn't make any sense at all. But it makes perfect sense. I want you to stand up a minute. Would you do that? Stand up. Hold your hands up. Hold your, hold your hands out. Wiggle your fingers. Wave your arms. Lift up your feet. Look down at your feet. <laughs> Simon says. <laughs> now... What do you notice? What do you notice? Many members. Okay. 
are they different? Okay? Your fingers and your toes and your arms, your legs, everything's different, right? Okay? David, everything's different. You agree? Okay. How many bodies do you have? You have one body. And many parts, right? Agree? Many parts, one body. You can be seated now. <clears throat> one body with many parts. That's you individually, physically speaking. One body, many parts. And there's diversity in your unity and unity in your diversity, right? Unity, one body, diversity. It's not either or, it's both and. And folks, that's exactly how the church is. Exactly. One body, but many members. And the gifts are diverse. But they all function together for the unity of the body. You can even go further than that. You can even say, uh, you know, you, you look at your hands, you look at your feet on your body. Your hands are not identical. There's some differences you'd be able to point out. You could, you could take people in the church with the very same gift. You could take two people in a Sunday school class, two co-teachers of one class. And oftentimes, people will tell me in that class, we love both of our, our teachers are totally different. They both have the same gift of teaching, but they're totally different. So-and-so, he is real academic, and he concentrates on the meaning of the passage and the original words and, and the biblical backgrounds and all that. And this other guy... He's real practical in his teaching. We love them both. We need them both. But they're so different. But they both have the same gift. The gift of teaching. How can that be? Because it's the way that God has designed it. We're going to see the same thing about the church. I want you to think with me first of all tonight about his gifts to believers. His gifts to believers. Notice the word uh, that he, when he, when he says there, uh, but, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm actually reading from verse 7. I backed up on your verse. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What Paul is discussing here is the different gifts that God gives to his church. Now, there's several different words in the Greek New Testament for gifts when we talk about spiritual gifts. There's the word charismata, the way you'd bring it over into English. Charismata. Uh, C-H-A-R-I-S. 
M-A-T-A, charismata. What does the word charismata mean? Charismatic. And in, in Greek, uh, uh, charis is the word for grace. So charismata would be what? Grace gift. A spiritual gift is a grace gift. Mata, the gift, charis, grace, grace gift. That's one word that is used in the Greek New Testament to describe spiritual gifts. A second word that's used is pneuma, pneumatikon, uh, P N. E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-N. And of course, these words in, in the Greek language would have different endings on them, so you'll, you'll find them with different endings. But pneuma is the word for what? Spirit, exactly. And so what's being emphasized here is these are Spiritual gifts, now it's not so much talking about the Holy Spirit as a a spiritual gift as opposed to a material gift is the contrast. A material gift would be what? An automobile, a new suit, a new book. We're not talking about material gifts, we're talking about a spiritual gift. And then the word used here in verse 7 is Doria, D-O-R-E-A. Again, you'll find different forms to these words. And that particular word, the emphasis is on it being free. It's a free gift. So there are grace gifts. There are Gifts of a spiritual nature, not a material nature. And they're freely given. This is just some of the combined thought when you, when you look at different words in the Greek New Testament about what the scripture says about spiritual gifts. They're grace gifts. They're of a spirit nature, spiritual, not material And they're freely bestowed on us. Okay? And each believer's gift is unique. It's unique. And it comes from the Lord. The Lord measures out the exact proportion of each believer's gift. The gift is measured out and the portion of the gift is measured out. It's sort of like what we see in Jesus' parable of the talents. One guy got five, one guy got two, one guy got one. Different gifts, but different proportions. Why? Because apparently the guy who got five, the Lord knew he could handle more. The guy who got two, that's all he could handle, that's all he was given. The guy who got one was still given something, but he wasn't given as much. Now on judgment day, the guy who only got one wasn't judged uh, according to, you know, what would you do with five? He wasn't given five. He was given one. And he was unfaithful. 
So he was judged harshly. The guy who got two wasn't judged on the basis, again, of five. He was judged on the basis of just his two. And he was faithful with what he had been given. The guy with five was faithful with the five. And so he was blessed on that basis. So they got a a different uh, gift and different amounts of that. Different portions. And the Lord... Only When the master returned, he only judged them on the basis of the portion he had given to them and if they were faithful with it or not. So the Lord gives you your gift and he gives you the portion that he knows that he created you to have. He knows you. And he knows what you're capable of. Okay? And so he matches you up with the proper gift according to the way he's designed you and the, and the portion. Now, what do we see in the biblical text? We see that there are many different spiritual gifts given. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 12 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 12 and let's read verses 4 to 6. 1 Corinthians 12 Four to six. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What's being emphasized there? What's one thing that's being emphasized there? Variety, right? Variety. Now again, if you're just, if you're just coming in here, uh, we're talking about the Lord does ministry in His church through, through gifts that He gives to the church. It's how we operate the different passages. Now, let me say this. In, in all of these different passages, if you were to list all the gifts out separately, you would come up with something like 19. And they're different in each list. Uh, apparently, you know, it was because each congregation was different. The needs of each congregation was different, and the Lord gave different gifts what that congregation needed. I, I don't think any of the lists are intended to be exhaustive. I think when we put them all together, we get maybe somewhat more of an exhaustive list, but I'm not sure even that's exhaustive. But again, Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 6, there's varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. But notice, whereas there are varieties, what does he pair up with that? Same, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God who works in all things. One God who gives the various gifts. Okay? Yes. Right? But he's not just giving one person 
Sure. Even though he, they both got the same gift in it, different uh, churches. Yeah. And it's the same on all these others here, Joel. Mm-hmm. Just like the illustration I used a moment ago about two people in the same Sunday school class. Both might have the gift of teaching, but they're very different in how they're wired to do that. I don't teach like Steve does. Exactly. But again, the Lord, I think the Lord matches up the gift with the way he's made that person too. Uh, So it's that gift in that person which makes it very unique. Now, we notice in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, I, I want you to also see that the gifts are given for the common good. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, your spiritual gift is not just for you. It is given for the sake of the body. So if you're not using your gift, you're hurting the body. You're hurting the body of Christ. You're blessed when you use your gift, and I, I think you suffer when you don't use it. You're, you're depriving yourself of, of a way God's intended for you to serve the body, but you're actually even diminishing the ministry of that body when you don't use your gift. That's true. That's true. More training on gifts needed. Good point. Sure. Right. Good point. Sure. Right. Right. To get training in that. So, a good point. In in. In each church, more training needed on the gifts. How, they're, how to develop it and how they're used and how there may be some different nuances in it. Well, I think we could, we could say still something else about this. From verse 11, we could also say that the gifts are given according to the sovereign wisdom of God. Look at verse 11 there. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So God gives gifts according to his design, his wisdom. He's sovereign. He knows you. He knows the body here or in each church. He He knows what's needed. And so, you don't pick your gift. I don't pick my gift. You don't pick your neighbor's gift. God's the one who gives the gifts as he designs. Uh, Still something else we could say under this first point. Uh, No one should downplay the importance of their gift. Look at verse 15. Beginning in verse 15, he says, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, 
I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Again, he states, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one as he chose. So you, you can't downplay your gift. I'm not this, you know. That's, that's not my role. I'm, I'm not important. Yes, you are. You hear that all the time, though, in, in Christians. They will downplay their gift. I, well, I can't do my gift like so-and-so does. I, I'm not that important. Well, yes, you are. Likewise, he goes on to say a fifth principle here to this first main point I've given you. No one should downplay the importance of somebody else's gift. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You can't downplay your gift and you can't downplay your neighbor's gift. Could you imagine somebody being so arrogant in a church to say, you know what? Church needs my gift. My gift is so-and-so. Church needs my gift. Jim, we don't need you. (laughs) We don't need your gift. Could you imagine the arrogance in that? Here again, sometimes people act that way. Oh, the church needs what I have to offer we don't need what he or she has to offer so much. Yes, you do. Uh, so again, God's given you the gift and even the portion of it, the way he's designed, it's from him. You don't pick it. There's, there's diversity in the unity. Again, this is by his design. Don't downplay yours. Don't downplay somebody else's. He's he's designed it this way to fit together. Why? So that the whole will be stronger. And and talking about downplaying, you notice what Paul goes on to say beginning in verse 22. Sometimes those parts of the body that people say aren't that important, in some contexts, that might be a more indispensable part. Somebody can do something behind the scenes that nobody ever knows about. And if they were not to do that anymore, boy, the body would really, really suffer. And then somebody says, well, why why are we not doing such and such anymore? Why is this not being done? Why is this group not being ministered to? Why are we not doing that? Oh, because so-and-so's not doing that. Oh, they're the one that's been doing it. Yeah. And you see how important it is when they don't do it. You know, as long as they're doing it, maybe nobody notices. It's just clicking along. And then when they're not doing it anymore, all of a sudden, hey, whoa. Well, you see how indispensable. They weren't flashy. They weren't out in front of everybody. Attention wasn't called to them and what they were doing. But when they're not doing it anymore, boy, it's noticed. Absolutely. Very important. Yep. (laughs) 
Yeah, let, uh, let, the, let the parents have to bring, if a baby gets brought into the service and just pitches a royal fit the whole, to where people can't even hear what's going on. And here's a baby pitching a fit and everybody's looking around like, and parents like, well, nobody's over there to take care of my baby. Then you're going to all of a sudden see how important a nursery worker is, right? Uh, let's go back to Ephesians 4 for a minute after just looking at some of those basic principles in 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians 4, let's think first of all, when did God get what he's just said from verses 4 and following? When did God give gifts to the church? Well, he points out here that upon or right after the ascension. That it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now let's, let's try to follow what's being said here. I want us to deal with these verses together because... There, there are three main interpretations of what Paul is saying here. When the Lord gave gifts to the church. Okay? Three main interpretations. And, and let me say this too. That there are conservative Bible-believing scholars who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture who hold to each of these positions. It's not like... One group's cornered the market. Different conservative, Bible-believing scholars hold to each of these. The first interpretation says that, that uh, when Christ is pointed out here as having descended, it's simply referring to the incarnation. Bethlehem, the incarnation. Uh, even when it says he descended into the lower parts of the earth, all that, all that this means according to this interpretation is that he went as low as he could get. He came to the earth and he came humbly. When he came to the earth, he wasn't born a king. He didn't go to palaces. He was born to a peasant family. So when he came, not only did he come down to the earth, but he came lowly, lowly peasant. Uh, Philippians 2 talks more about that. That's one, one way of looking at it. Another interpretation, the second interpretation says what, what is being said here is what interpretation number one just included, but adds that when he descended to the lower parts of the earth, it simply means that he died. He was buried. In other words, he was in a tomb. He was in the bosom of the earth for a period of three days. The thinking is, you can't get much lower than dying. 
So he came in the incarnation, but then he didn't just bloop out of here. He went through death. Now the third position points out what those two did, but then adds that between Christ's death and resurrection, between his death and resurrection, he descended uh, into paradise and into Hades. Uh, in the Old Testament, Sheol is referred to, the place of the dead. And one area of Sheol was Hades, the other area of Sheol was paradise. Uh, paradise was also known as Abraham's bosom, where the Old Testament saints went. The Old Testament wicked went to that section of Sheol called Hades. Even those who went to paradise in Sheol, uh, they were saved, but they were saved on credit, so to speak. They looked forward to the cross of Christ, whereas we look back. They were saved by faith. They weren't saved by the deeds of the law. They were saved by faith that God would provide for himself one day the perfect sacrifice. They looked forward to that. They waited on that. They died still waiting. Uh, Book of Hebrews chapter 11 says they could not be perfected apart from us. And so when they died, they went to the place of reward, a place of bliss, like heaven, but distinct from heaven. That's why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So when Jesus died, he went to Sheol. 1 Peter 3 says that, that he went to the bad place of Sheol and he made proclamation to the spirits who were now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Those spirits are who? Demon spirits. He went and made proclamation to them. And the word proclamation is significant. It's not the word for proclamation that offers hope. In other words, Jesus wasn't trying to evangelize demons. They can't be evangelized. The word proclamation means that he went there to announce his victory over them and over Satan. He announced what he had just done at the cross. He announced that he had kicked their tails. The cross, didn't, the cross didn't defeat him. Then he went over to paradise, the good side of Sheol, said to the Old Testament saints, Y'all, let's bust this joint. Let's get out of here. And in the ascension, he led captive a host of captives. He escorted them to heaven. Now, all of this brings to mind. Yes, yes. All of this brings to mind that what, what, what would happen when a ruler in ancient times would defeat another ruler. He would go into that ruler's land and he would set the captives free. And then the victorious king would go back to his own land 
And there would be a victory parade. The captives who, would set, who were set free would be with the king in the parade. And as the parade went through the streets, the king would, give, would throw out gifts to the crowd. They were celebration gifts. That's the imagery that Paul is playing on here. What the people of his day would have understood because of these victory parades. And when Jesus ascended back to, the, to the heaven to send the Spirit, instead of gifts like a king, an earthly king might give in a celebration parade, what Paul is saying here, when King Jesus gives gifts, what are those gifts? Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. So at his ascension, Jesus prayed to the Father. Father gave the Spirit who gave the gifts. That's the richness of what's being pointed out here. Um, First time you've ever heard that analogy? No? This background, is that the first time? Okay. Okay. It, again, it's a rich analogy. And those in Paul's day, understanding kings defeating us, setting captives free, going back to the victory parades, throwing out gifts, they, they would have understood this analogy. Okay? Well... Let's think about the identity of the gifts that he gives, that he's talking about here. Uh, Not even getting into Romans 12 yet or 1 Corinthians. But look at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. It's interesting here how the identity of these gifts is actually persons. Persons. Elsewhere, like in Romans, we're going to see gifts like leadership, the gift of administration, the gift of giving, the gift of teaching, the gift of mercy, the gift of exhortation, so forth and so on. But notice here, the gifts he gives are actually persons. In these roles. And the first one that he describes is apostle. Who were the apostles? The original 12 that Jesus chose, right? And then in Acts chapter 1, who did they have to replace? Judas. Then the Bible says Paul was an apostle born out of due time. And then also James, the Lord's half-brother, is listed also among the apostles. But folks, the, the New Testament definition of an apostle was very narrow. There are no apostles today in the New Testament sense of the word. If somebody introduces their pastor to you and says, Here is my, my pastor... He's Apostle Joe. I want you to meet my pastor, Apostle Joe. 
No, he's not. He's not an apostle. Or, or they're, they're not using the term in the biblical sense. An apostle had to be somebody who had witnessed the comings and goings of Jesus and were eyewitnesses to his resurrection and Jesus had appeared to them after the resurrection. Only the original 12 and James and Paul could meet those qualifications. Even though Paul and James were not believers at the time of Jesus' earthly life, they were witnesses of everything that happened in and around Jerusalem and Jesus personally appeared to them after his resurrection. Just read 1 Corinthians 15 about who all Jesus appeared to. And so James and Paul qualified too. But again, nobody qualifies today as an apostle. Next were the prophets. Uh, There were Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. God used the apostles and prophets to do what for the church? Hmm? What did he do through those two groups, apostles and prophets? Okay, establish the church and the beginning of the function. And, and what else? You what? They spoke and in addition to speaking the word of God, what else did they do? They wrote the word of God. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Uh, Again, in the purest biblical sense of the word, there are no prophets today just like there are no apostles. We talk about the gift of prophecy, but what we're talking about is foretelling what God's word already says, not foretelling in the sense of giving new revelations. God's not giving... We don't believe God's giving new revelations. In the canon of Scripture, we have His Word. You don't need to go down to Lifeway Bookstore next week and buy a new Bible because sometime between last week and this week, He's added book number 67. And then next week, you're going to need to go out and buy another Bible again because He's added book 68. We believe we have the complete canon of Scripture. And God used the prophets, the apostles, and prophets to give his word to the church. Very important role that they, they had. Folks, it's very dangerous today for people to act like there's still apostles and prophets receiving new revelations. That's how cults get started. Okay, the Bible says the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Now, through the apostles and prophets, what did God do in New Testament times to confirm the message they spoke? Miracles. 
the signs and wonders and miracles to confirm the message that they preached. Uh, Even as the New Testament era was closing, we don't see miracles and wonders being done in the letters to the churches the way they were done in the book of Acts. I'm not saying that God can't do a miracle today. God's God. He can reach down and heal somebody of cancer without a doctor. God can do that. But more of the more of the miracles and signs and wonders sort of on demand that they like in the early chapters of the book of Acts, they would do these miraculous gifts to confirm the message they were speaking, that it was of God. We don't we don't see that today. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 even seems to be implying to us that that period is, is passing off the scene because he talks about that first generation of apostles and how through their message God did signs and wonders confirming the message to us. The writer of Hebrews seems to be saying... He's a second generation Christian. He's not one of the apostles. He's a second generation Christian who benefited from their ministry. And that this period of signs and wonders has already started passing away some. Again, I'm not saying that God can't do a miracle today. I'm just saying you don't go to church. You go to some of these churches today, some of these churches, and they act like, and I don't know if you ever talked to some of these people I have, but, but they act like every Sunday when you go to church through the ministers, somebody's going to be slain in the Spirit and some kind of miracle is going to be done. And that they act like that's supposed to be the norm for this period. That we're going to go to church and our preacher's going to do some kind of miracle in front of everybody for everybody to see. No, God did that through the prophets and apostles. Confirming that the new message they were preaching, the gospel, was from Him. Then when the foundation is laid, though, you don't need another foundation. The foundation's laid, we build on it. And so building on it, he mentions the third group that he gives here, evangelist. Evangelist. Now, are all of us to be witnesses? Yes, all of us. Acts 1.8, Jesus commissioned his, his uh, disciples to go out and be witnesses. <clears throat> all of us are to be witnesses. All of us have the responsibility of evangelism. But on top of that, there are some people that God specifically gifts for the office of evangelist. Somebody like a Billy Graham. Uh, doesn't take away the fact that all of us are to be evangelists in a sense of sharing the gospel. 
But there are some that God has given to the church that that is their role, the office of the evangelist. It's interesting that the only person referred to as an evangelist in the New Testament was a layman. What was his name? Philip. Dr. Billy Graham has said that in his studies, uh, his studies have revealed to him that most of the great evangelists in the church today are laymen. So don't think, you know, to be an evangelist, if, if God's called me to, to be an evangelist, um, I've got to be a pastor. None. Many laymen have been great evangelists. That may be your special gift. But again, all of us are called on to be witnesses. Because remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Come follow me, and I will teach you to be what? Fishers of men. Like Dr. D. James Kennedy used to say, if you're not being a witness, if you're not being a fisher of men, then who are you following? You're not following Jesus. You may say you are, but you're not. Because as D. James Kennedy was fond of saying, because Jesus himself said, if you come and follow me, here's what I'm going to make you. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So if you're not fishing for men, you need to ask yourself, are you really following Jesus? That's pretty pointed comments Dr. Kennedy made. And then uh, the next group, he says, uh, pastors, pastors and teachers. The word pastor refers to being a shepherd. A, A shepherd is someone who has a concern and passion to see God's sheep taken care of. Uh, A pastor wants to see the sheep follow the the chief shepherd. The work of a pastor is to teach the sheep the word of God. His main work is to feed the flock, to teach them, to see that they have the proper nourishment. Uh, one of the qualifications of pastor in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul said to Timothy, is that he has to be apt to teach. Somebody can have the gift of teaching without being a pastor, but they can't really be a pastor without teaching because shepherding, being a pastor of God's flock, involves teaching the flock the Word of God. Now, along with teaching, uh, a, a pastor had to warn the flock of danger. He had to admonish the flock of where to go. And, and so he, uh, he was involved with the flock, leading them. He wasn't driving them. He was leading them, going with them, and teaching them, and guarding them, and caring for them. Now, the Greek text allows for the, the words here, pastor-teacher, to be joined together. And, and that is the way I understand the Greek text here. 
that the two the two are seen together. There is an office we're going to see in other passages. There's an office of a teacher who's not a pastor, but I think here we are to interpret the two together. Pastor teacher. You know, for instance, that's the way John MacArthur, for instance, will describe himself. He's pastor teacher. Taking these two terms together. Uh, so those, those are the offices, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Uh, those persons that are a gift to the church. And what's the goal? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why does God give these persons here to the church? To do all of the ministry? No. To equip you to do the ministry. The famous Oklahoma football coach, Bud Wilkinson, was asked on one occasion, has football done anything for the health of America? He said, absolutely not. Those on the field playing are in excellent shape and should be in the stands watching. Those in the stands are in terrible shape and should be on the field playing. That's a pretty good word to the church, isn't it? Except that none of us should be in the stands. I am to, according to Ephesians 4, I am to equip you for the works of ministry. Kevin Seeger, Kevin Knight, Jonathan, Jennifer, Amy, everybody on staff. Our role is to equip you for you to go and do the ministry. How sad the, the uh, mentality that has slipped into American Christianity that if we need ministry done, we just go out and hire somebody to do it. We can hire somebody to lead us in that aspect of ministry who will equip others in that area to do it, but we're not supposed to just be hiring somebody to do it for us. What, just imagine for a moment, what, would ha- what if you came to church on a typical Sunday morning and everybody knew their spiritual gift and they were doing it? What would church look like if everybody knew their spiritual gift and they were doing it? You pull on the parking lot, there's all kinds of parking lot attendants, all kinds of greeters and ushers. You go into every classroom in the church, every nursery in the church, got an abundance of people. Too many people serving. Come over here, too many, choir law full of people leading us. Any area, whatever area of the church you went into, shortage was not the issue at all. You say, fantasy. Unfortunately, that is a fantasy in most churches. But it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be how it is. (laughs) Uh, 
to give an analogy and, and careful because it's a, it's a strong analogy. But if Jesus were among us today, physically, is there anybody in here that would get out of your seat and walk up to Jesus and physically try to do him bodily harm? Would anybody try to do him bodily harm? No. Obviously we wouldn't. Nobody in their right mind would walk up to Jesus and try to do him bodily harm. You say, Scott, where are you going with this? You and I would not think about doing him bodily harm. And yet, every week, we do harm to his body by not knowing what our spiritual gift is and not doing our spiritual gift. We do harm to his body. We hinder his body. You follow what I'm saying? There's a sense in which we harm his body because we're not doing our spiritual gift which is meant to edify and build up and bless his body. People that would never physically hurt Jesus literally, what's the church known as? The body of Christ. There are people who hinder and harm the body of Christ because they don't do the ministry that the Lord has called them to do. Again, their ministry is not for them. It's for the sake of the building up and the blessing of the body of Christ. Because they don't do it, the body of Christ suffers. It's just an analogy I'm giving you. Don't run too far with it. But you understand what I'm saying? We harm the body of Christ. When we don't know what our spiritual gift is and we're not using it. When we don't know what it is and we're not using it. We are harming and hindering the body of Christ, the church. Think about that. The church flounders today all over the world. I want you to remember you're gifted and you're accountable. Uh, Every one of us, one day, there is coming a day that we will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will have to give an account of ourselves in relation to this issue right here. Just like those guys in the parable of the talents. So again, what's the goal? He says in verse 12, to equip the saints. What's he go on to say in verse 13? That we might be mature. Uh, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. To equip the body that the body might grow up. Grow up on doctrine. Grow up in maturity. Be spiritually mature. I think we could also talk about 
organizational maturity too, right? Some church, because of the gifts we've not even gotten to tonight, the administration and leadership, some churches are falling all over themselves not knowing what to do because the people who ought to be leaders and administrators and all that aren't doing it. And so the organizationally, there's not organizational maturity. Uh, also, he says, the goal is that we might be firmly settled. Verse 14, no longer like children tossed to and fro. So grounded, growing, organized, built up, encouraged, blessed. All of these things when the gifts are being used for the body of Christ. So that really only leaves one question for tonight's lesson, right? And like I say, we'll come back next week and I want us to talk more about some of these other gifts and then continue to move on in our study of the church. But uh, the, the one question that tonight's lesson really begs is, do you know what your gift is? And on piggyback to that question is, are you using it being a blessing to Christ's body, the church. Do you know what your gift is? And are you using it? That's the question. If you don't, pray. Do you think it's God's will? If you pray about something, uh, if you pray about something that's not God's will, are you going to get it? There was a young man I knew in college. Such a silly prayer he'd always... He, he really thought he was supposed to be able to ask God for a candy apple red, brand spanking new Corvette. And he could not understand why God wasn't giving him as a college student a brand spanking new candy apple red Corvette. Well, don't, he'd say, doesn't God say, ask and ask anything you have not because you ask not? I'm praying and asking God for that. He's not giving me that. Well, you have to, you have to put all the teaching on prayer together to know that we, we've got to be praying according to His will. And John says in 1 John 5, if we're praying according to His will, we can be confident that He's going to hear and answer our prayers. Do you think it's God's will for you to pray about what your spiritual gift is if you don't know? It's God's will. If you don't know what your gift is, pray about it. Because on the authority of God's word, I think we can say with 100% certainty, it is God's will for you to know what your spiritual gift is. So if you don't know, start praying about it. What are you passionate about doing? What do you love to do related to ministry? What do you just love to do? And, and maybe, maybe people affirm you of that when you do it. There's some type of affirmation that they, they encourage you in that. Pay attention to all of that. What do you love doing in the body of Christ? Uh, what do you get affirmation at? That's, that's not the be-all, end-all in discovering what your spiritual gift is. But I think that can help. What am I passionate about doing? What do people affirm me in? 
So examine yourself in regards to that and pray about it. Say, God, I'm supposed to know and I'm supposed to be using it to be a blessing to your church. Would you please help me to understand what it is? And I think God will show it to you. He may not show it to you by 8 o'clock in the morning. But be patient. I think he'll show it to you.